My name is Todd Neiswanger. Um, I haven't spoke for a little while. And uh, so for those of you that might be new to Cornerstone, I'm the executive pastor here. Um, Francis is gone uh, this weekend. Um, probably on, probably one of the scariest and uh, uh, mo- he'll probably suffer more than any other trip. He's in Australia. Yeah. And so uh, as he suffers down there, you might just want to keep him in prayer. And uh, I prayed for him differently on Thursday night, though. I watched Lost. <laughs> I won't tell you how I prayed, though. But uh, no, he is gone. He's speaking to... It's really cool what he's going to get to do down in Sydney. And so if you get a chance, just be praying for him. But here's what I want to do this morning. Um, I'm going to talk about a difficult subject. And I always get hesitant. Um, to speak on a subject like this because whenever you talk about pain, the reality that we're going to deal with in this room right now is that people are either in pain, they've just left pain, or without knowing it, they're about ready to enter pain. It's just, that's a fact of life. I wish there was another way around it, but there's not. And my big fear in talking through this is that you will miss my heart is that bottom line is the reason I'm talking about pain today is because I believe it's the best thing for us. I stand up here as a guy that's examined his heart, and I just want you to know that from the bottom of my heart, I'm saying this because I love you. And my huge fear a lot of times is when we talk about issues like maturity, we want maturity without pain. We want a lot of things without pain. Um, I was talking with a guy that he he is trying to lose weight, and he wants to be that chiseled, you know, built guy, but he doesn't want the pain to be that guy, if you know what I mean. He'd rather eat bonbons and uh, watch football. And the thing about what Dan talked about last week, and for those of you who weren't here, he kind of had these three chairs. And he kind of talked about these three chairs in a unique way. He talked about this group kind of being that person that's never really embraced faith, this group that has fully embraced their faith, that is walking with the Lord, and kind of this group right here that's riding on the coattails of this group. And one of the things that I realized while I was thinking through it and watching him is that I like this chair. I like it a lot. It's comfy. It's the most comfortable chair because, and here's why, and I'm going to give you an insight into uh, me and so um, you may want to leave after this. I like this chair because I'm better than these people. And I can look back at them and go, well, at least I'm not them. You know, the Jerry Springer effect over here. I think the reason we watch Jerry Springer, some of us, is we like to think, I'm not as big of a loser as I thought I was, right? But in a weird way, though, I also love to watch sports because I love to live my life through people that are heroes. I love this chair over here. I love to sit from this perspective because then I don't have to do it. Somebody else does it and I can cheer them on. One of the reasons I love church history and I read church history is I read about these amazing men and women of the faith and just by reading it, I feel somehow I've gotten mature, but that's not maturity. See, sometimes we live in a lie thinking that somehow I can get to this chair without pain. And one of the things when I was listening to Dan talk last week is, is it's impossible. It's absolutely impossible to get to that chair and and everybody left and I heard several people say to me, oh, I want to be in that chair. And so finally I said to one guy, he said, I want to be in that chair. And I go, really? I go, do you really? 
And he goes, well, of course. He goes, who wouldn't want to be mature? I said, okay. I go, I think the thing is, though, when I took him to Luke 14, and we kind of talked through this issue, when Jesus is looking at the, at the people following him, he says, you better count the cost before you say you want that chair. Because that chair, let me tell you something, I would want to be no place else than this chair. Because this chair, can you imagine this person right here, the day they die? And they're standing in front of God. Oh, who wouldn't want to be him? Because that's the one God's going to look at and go, well done, good and faithful servant. See, I want that chair. But Jesus said you better count the cost because in Luke 14, 25 and 26 and 27, he works through this issue where he said, in order to get in that chair, you've got to understand something very, very important. Unless you hate your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your kids, and then he says, yes, even your own life and take up your cross and follow me, you can't get in that chair. That chair is going to be impossible. Now, we like to explain away that verse and go, well, what Jesus really meant. Well, let me just tell you, Jesus used the word hate. Now, again, I'll explain to you what it means. It means that I love God so much that I, it, in comparison to everything else, everything else seems like hate because I'm still supposed to love my neighbors myself. But when Dan said, man, I want to make a futon up here, my, I kind of in a little way went, oh, don't say futon. Because it makes it sound like all of us are going to be sitting here going, ah, Welcome to Cornerstone. Join the family, the futon. You know what I'm saying? It's not. This, this chair right here, Jesus said, Oh, there will be trials. And I would say to all of us in this room, Are you sure you want to get in that chair? Now, there's a good side of that, which I love. Also, in the book of Matthew, Jesus says, Look, there's a perk to that chair. And he told the story about this treasure in this field in which this guy went and sold everything he had to get that field. And he told the story about this pearl of great price and he's, this guy that went and sold everything he could to obtain this pearl of great price. And let me tell you something. There will be nothing cooler in this whole world than the day that I stand in front of God and I would nothing more than to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Won't that just be amazing? <sighs> it was true. It was real. It was worth it. Because this chair right here is worth it. But you've got to decide today, are you sure you want to sit in this chair? Because I don't want to leave today, and the reason I'm saying this with absolute love is, is because I'm afraid that there are a bunch of people, Francis preached this little message called Lukewarm and Loving It. And I think we love this chair, don't we? feels so good. I can sit and I can watch the losers on my left and I can live through the heroes on my right. Go, Francis! Go build a building without a roof on it! (laughs) Go, 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 go! Come on, Francis, do the 50-50 thing. You can do it, man. We don't understand a clue what you're doing, but do it! Right? And so we sit over here and we, and we do this. Forgetting the fact that this may not be a saving faith. I may just be living my life through somebody else. And the other scary thing is this. I was thinking about this. I might embrace that chair, but would I do it with my wife and my kids? 
See, the thing about this chair that's so fascinating is, is if I'm sitting here and all of a sudden I come to church at Cornerstone. Now, at church at Cornerstone, the thing about Cornerstone is, is you know we take lefts and rights faster than anybody on this planet. And that's why we love it. But our goal in your child's life is to get them to embrace this chair. Right now, our goal, whether it is your kid who is uh, an infant, clear up through your kid that's in high school or college, our goal is that your kid, because we believe this is the best chair for them, our goal is to get them to embrace this chair. Now, the thing you've got to understand about this chair, though, is it can freak a parent out. I'll never forget, man, the first time one of my kids in high school came home and told his parents he didn't think he was going to go to college because he thought what he needed to do was go to live with the poor. I got a phone call quickly. What are you telling my kid to do? I, I, uh, I'm not telling him to do anything. Your kid just decided to embrace this chair. We're telling your kid, you know what? Jesus taught that it's so important to love our neighbor even to the point that we would give our life for him. And our goal in the life of your kids and even in your life is to get you to buy into this chair so much and to buy in it so much and to believe it's such a pearl of great price and such a treasure in the field that you will sell everything you have. You will go overboard because you believe to sit in this chair is the most amazing place to sit in this planet even in spite of the pain that it will cost you to live in this chair. Because the thing about pain that nobody understands until you're in it is that there is absolute joy in pain. And the other, night, the other day I went over and there was a group of foster parents and they're thinking about doing the foster thing and a guy raises his hand and he said, how in the world is it that you guys bring these kids into your home and then you give them up? He goes, that must hurt. And I go, yes, it does. It hurts like crazy that day that you poured your life into this kid and they come and they just, you watch them get into this van and they pull away. But I said, you know what, that's not the point. The point is that it's Right. The point is, is that when I lay in bed at night, even though knowing it hurt like crazy, you know when it's just so good that you've done the right thing? You've done that thing that matters. Even though it hurts like crazy, you've done the right thing. It hurts like crazy to do the right things in people's lives, doesn't it? If you don't believe that parent, right? Oh, the first time my baby threw a fit. I was like, not my child. I'm sitting there going, ah, what do we do? What do we do? You know, and everybody says, I'm a terrible pastor and I'm not have a good kid. And out of nowhere comes Wonder Woman, a.k.a. my wife. And she's like, ah, ah, whoosh. And off that child went to help that child become more lovable. Pain. See, here's the thing. The whole point of what I'm going to talk about today is, is the most important part of your life, the most important time of your life is the day that you stand in front of Jesus Christ. There is no more important day than any other day than right there. It's not the day you got married. It's not the day that you had your first kid or your second kid or whatever kid. It's not any other day than the day that you stand in front of Jesus Christ. And I want to make sure that everybody in this room understands what it means to stand in front of Jesus Christ. And that's what Peter's going to talk about in 1 Peter 1. What he's going to do is he's going to lay out this idea of making sure that these believers understand that pain is worth it because pain prepares us for the day that we stand in front of our Savior. We can't go any other way is Peter's point. And so go with me to 1 Peter. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Open up 1 Peter 1. We're going to start in verse 3. 
And let me see if I can show you what I'm talking about with this whole issue of pain. 1 Peter 1. Look at verse 3. Peter writes this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, never spoil, never fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Now for some of you right there, you were bored. In fact, I would be willing to bet if, if everybody's honest and I said, hey, let's take a show of hands, how many of you really didn't hear what I said? There were probably a large number that didn't hear it. Right now there's some of you going, yeah, it was me. Yeah, thank you for that hand over there. I'd like you to show you the most honest person in our church. Thank you, Patty. But here's my fear. I think we get bored with being saved. I think we get bored. Like I was trying to remember back to the first time I came to know Jesus Christ and I was 21. It was March 19th, 1993. And I was in Las Vegas, Nevada and I was in the nasty bathroom and for the first time my sin hit me but then over that summer was the first time I began to experience and to know God. I couldn't get enough materials. I was soaking in all this amazing who God is and what He's done in my life and what He saved me from and what He saved me to and I'm just soaking it in and on July 4th, 1993, I will never forget this, I'm driving on an I-80 through Nebraska God help me. I can't believe God spoke to me there, by the way. And I stopped between two little towns in Nebraska. I remember one of them was a little town called Potter. And I see the fireworks going off. And it hit me. I'm going to heaven. I'm going to spend an eternity with Jesus Christ forever. Jesus took all my sins and he nailed them to that tree. And I will never ever pay the punishment for what I'm owed. And I remember just thinking, oh my gosh, I escaped hell. And in the middle of Nebraska, here I am having this epiphany and I just started actually even bawling. I'm like, no way. And as I was prepping this message and I was reading what Peter was writing about, I am sad to say that I don't get as excited as that night. Because in verse 7, he's going to say something extremely fascinating. In verse, excuse me, verse 6. He's going to say, In this you greatly rejoice. He's going to say, Look, in this, and he's going to call all the way back to verses 3 through 5, in this, this idea that you were a person that was bought, that was taken out of the slave market of sin, that everything was owed to you, was eternal punishment. God took that punishment upon himself. He gave you new life. He gave you everything that was owed to Jesus Christ. You now received, and you're now called a child of God, and soon to spend eternity with him forever. You are kept solid. It says you're kept in heaven by God. Okay, that's pretty good security. That whole heaven-God thing. I don't think anything's going to rip that apart. And he says, in this you greatly rejoice. And I love that word. That word is absolutely amazing. It's this Greek word, agaliao, which literally means to smile from ear to ear. It means to jump for joy. Here's the question. When's the last time 
you just started jumping because you were saved. You ever thought about that? If that is the most important thing in my life, if that is the number one, the most important thing in my life, when is the last time that you honestly went, yes! <laughs> Walked up to somebody, you wouldn't believe this. Okay, I was going to hell. And now I'm going to heaven. Do you get me, man? And you get all excited. I mean, freak each other out today when we leave the service. Like, don't hug me. You know how I feel about hugs. Go hug other people. Give them a huge hug and just say, I was going to hell. And now I'm going to heaven. You wouldn't believe this. I'm a child of God. Secure forever. And Peter says, you've got to understand that if you're going to understand the plan of God in your life when it comes to pain. Because if you don't believe that God is out for your good, you're going to always question why God is doing what He's doing in your life. See, somehow we have this idea that God saved me, but then He doesn't continue to have what's best for me in mind. God, I know you ripped me out of the uh, throes of hell, but at this point in my life, I'm going to question really what you're doing. Ever thought about how silly that is? And Peter wants to make sure you've got to understand this. Before I move on, before I tell you the rest of this, do you believe that if God sacrificed His own Son on your behalf, that He will go all the way, anything it takes, to make you what you need to be? Even if it means pain. And he's going to get into that. And he says this. He's going to come into it in verse uh, 6. He's going to say this also. He says, look, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Now the words that he's going to use in there are kind of deceptive in the NIV. So let me see if I can break it down for you. If you have the ESV, it, it, it should read it. And they, they actually catch it just right. It's, it's they, as was necessary. What he's talking about in here is that literally the trials that God brings into your life are absolutely necessary. They're key to who you are. And he uses this, this idea of these multi, all kinds of trials with this idea that God has this gigantic bank of tools with which to choose from, to pull out, to bring into your life the right things at the right time to accomplish the right task in your life. And God will use them. One guy put it this way, it's almost like God has all these colors and he's grabbing these colors and he's make, putting them into your life in all kinds of different faceted ways to paint the tapestry of your life to make your life the beautiful design that he designed it to be. And a lot of times I think we think in our head that somehow if God uses pain, he must be confused. Right, don't we? Come on, admit it, you think it. Why would God give me cancer? Why would God give me this disease? Why would God allow my divorce? Why would God allow my spouse to die, my child to die? Why would God, and fill in the blank, why would God allow natural disasters to happen? 
All these questions flood through our head when we, and we have to deal with them with this reality that if you don't bank on the hope that God is in, your, in it for your good, that if He was willing to go all the way with His Son, that even in the midst of your pain and trials, God still has in it that He wants to do what is for His glory and your good. And He's going to do whatever it takes. And that scares me on one level. I was trying to wrestle through it and I looked at my wife and I said, what is the thing that scares you the most? And she said, to be honest with you, I am so scared that I might get raped. And I looked at her and I said, what if God would allow that to happen to you for his glory and your good? And that freaked her out. Because we don't like to ask that question. When we have a baby inside of the womb, we don't like to ask the question, what if God is going to choose to give me a child that isn't what our society deems as the perfect child? What if? See, all these questions that go through our head, the the key to this passage is understanding it is necessary. And God is going to allow whatever it takes to come into your life to change you into the person that he wants you to be. And we have to grapple with that. Well, I think that forces us to two questions. First one is, is when God designs us, is it really necessary? Go with me to uh, 1 Peter 3.17. Let me show you something in there. Is it necessary? Look at this. Verse 17. It is better if it is God's What? Will. Go with me to 419. Just probably the next page. So then, those who suffer according to God's will. Suffering is a part of God's plan. In fact, the ultimate suffering happened in Isaiah 53 when we talk about this idea that it was the will of God that who would suffer? Christ. It was all part of the plan. It was part of the plan that people would suffer, that His Son would suffer. But that in it, the thing we have to again go back to is do we believe it's for God's glory and our good? Because if I don't believe that, the rest of everything I'm going to talk about makes no sense. That's the first question. Here's the second question. Does God really will for pain for us? And I've wrestled through this one for the longest time. In fact, I've spent the last nine months wrestling through this very issue. Does God really will for pain in our lives? And the only thing I can come to is the answer is yes and the answer is no. See, there's some kinds of God's will that that, there's sometimes in God's will that he does allow uniquely for us to sin. And in James 1.13, it talks about this fact that God, however, is not the author of our sin. See, there's some things that come upon us that are not uniquely enforced by God in the sense that if I choose to have uh, sex outside of marriage and I have a pregnancy, well, I can't blame that on God. That was my choice. That was my stupidity. But yet uniquely, I've got to believe, though, that even in the midst of my stupidity as a loved one to God, He's still going to work this for His glory and my good. People have done all sorts of things. Well, what about my affair? What about uh, me choosing... I've dealt with kids that use drugs that later on have ramifications in their life that are serious. 
And the thing I look back to him and I say, well, God didn't make you do that. But in the midst of this, do you trust God to take what you messed up and to be used for his glory and your good? The answer is also yes. I was thinking through that one. He allows it because he has bigger purposes. People always ask me the question, how could a God allow for people to die in gigantic catastrophes? How could a loving God do that? It would be better off that they were never born. And I looked at him and I said, you're right. For them, that's true, but it's not about them. It's about God. See, God will do whatever it takes to make sure that in our lives, he is preeminent. And even on difficult issues of immense pain that goes on around the world, even what's going on in your life right now, of of possibly being left by a spouse and divorce or cancer, or all these different things that come and they bombard us, is uniquely there's this loving Father that has brought it into our life for this grander purpose. And this is why I like it. The world doesn't have this. Ever thought about that? How miserable to go through cancer and to not be saved. How miserable to be in a divorce and to not be saved. How miserable to watch a loved one die and to not be saved. Because then there is no purpose. But the greatest thing in the world to know is, is that no matter what comes into my life, as it was necessary, it is God's will uniquely that this would take place inside of my life. And this is the part that I think that scares us the most. Because there's this little thing inside of us saying, I don't want that. I'm sitting here in this chair. (laughs) You don't understand. Have you seen my calendar? I don't have time for cancer. I don't have time for difficulty in my marriage. I don't have time. And the beauty of God is, is he is the creator and the master of the universe and he's, he'll say to you, I'll give you time. Because go with me to 2 Corinthians 1. I want to show you something. It's something that's so cool the way Paul works through this. 2, Peter, or 2 Corinthians 1. Paul's wrestling through this issue of, of suffering. Look at verse 8. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, our hearts, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Do you see that? You know what God's going to do in your life? And it's the most loving thing He can possibly do. He's not afraid to rip everything out till all you have left is him. He's not. Because he knows he's enough. He knows it. We clamor to our job, God, have you ever got rid of my job? He might just go, you're fine. God, have you got rid of my wife? You're fine. My kids, my money, whatever it is. And God says, you're fine. Let me show you something. Could you throw those quotes up on the uh, screen for me, please? I was reading The Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis. 
And in it, he argues through this issue that we're talking about. He says, God has paid us the intolerable compliment of loving us in the deepest, most tragic, most inexorable, relentless sense. Meaning, I'm sorry to tell you, but God loves you a lot. Go to the next slide. And it's natural for us to wish that God had designed for us a less glorious and less arduous destiny. In other words, don't love me that much. But then we are wishing not for more love, but for less. Go to the next one. You asked for a loving God, you have one. But He will make you lovable. To ask that God's love should be content with us as we are is to ask that God should cease to be God. Because He is what He is. His love must, in the nature of things, be impeded and repelled by certain stains in our present character. And because He already loves us, He must, lo- he must labor to make us lovable. Go to the next slide. When we want something other than the thing God wants us to be, we must be wanting what, in fact, will not make us happy. Go to the next slide. Love may cause pain to its object, but only on the supposition that the object needs alteration to become fully lovable. In other words, God as God has x-ray vision, and he's going to look into your life, and he's going to find exactly the weaknesses, the unlovable aspects of who you are. He's going to choose this tool of multicolored trials, and he's going to bring them into your life because he loves you so much. And it's going to hurt. See, in verse 7, he uses a pretty interesting analogy. He talks about gold being refined by fire. And the whole point of gold being refined by fire, he uses this unique verb to kind of explain it, is, is, is that when it gets heated up to the surface comes the impurities and they keep moving away the impurities over and over and over. And the more they remove these impurities, the more and more valuable the gold becomes. And the goldsmith just keeps heating it and heating it and heating it and heating it and removing impurities and removing impurities and removing impurities and removing impurities. Why? He does it because he's testing your faith. He wants you to see that you're for real. See, we live in a culture that really doesn't want to know the truth. We don't want to know the truth that we have a debt that our great-grandchildren will never pay off. We live in a world that really doesn't want to know the truth of the sin that's going on inside of our culture. We live in a world sometimes where it's like, if I have cancer, I really don't want to know about it. If my kids are doing drugs, I'm better off being ignorant. It's all these things where really, the scary thing about it, and this is what my wife confessed to me. She goes, Todd, bottom line, I'm afraid that when the trial hits me, I won't stand. Because I don't have true faith. And I think that's a fear for all of us. But remember in Job, and by the way, worship team, don't come up. I kind of just had an extra thought. When they heard Job, they were supposed to come in there. So, Matt, if you hear me, don't come in. Um, But in Job, the unique thing about him was, is that God was going to show Job off to the whole world. Both the physical world and the angelic world. I mean, can you imagine if Job knew what God was doing at the time? (laughs) Hey, you see my servant Job? I think you can put him through almost anything. He's going to stand. If Job was there, he would have been like, Hey, 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 hey. Woohoo! 
Do I have a little say in this? What's going on? What this whole take my family? Give me boils? Take my wealth? To which God knew the reality of Job's faith. And God was looking at Satan and going, Go ahead. Do your best. You're not going to get him to sin. Go on, Satan. He was going to show off to Satan and the world, and even he was going to go show Job for himself. See, Job, I told you so. I told you that your faith was legit. Because later on in this verse, in verse 7, he's going to talk about this. In fact, go there with me. Look at verse 7. 1 Peter 1, verse 7. At the very end, it says, Look, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire. And then he says this, May be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. See, here's the grace in pain. God is going to so work in our lives in which he is going to allow pain to enter in. He's going to allow impurities to come to the surface, which only pain can do. And he's going to sweep the dross away over and over and over so that before I stand in front of him on that day, I know I'm saved. Isn't that cool? Because I would hate to be in front of God the day that he says to anybody, depart from me, I don't know you. And see, that's the thing. I think a lot of times the thing in our kids' lives is is we ask them, did you say the sinner's prayer? Okay, good. Everything's good then. And then we never bother to think that the sinner's prayer does not save us. Faith saves us. And don't you want to know in your kid's life his faith is real? I mean, couldn't you imagine the absolute tragedy of being in heaven and finding out that your son or daughter is going to spend an eternity in hell because their faith was not real? And if you really, really desire for your son or daughter to have an eternity with Jesus Christ forever, the thing I'm going to tell you is do not protect your children from pain. Because we do that. Now, I'm not saying leave your doors unlocked and let them go play in the street, okay? I'm not talking silly. But I think one of the scariest things to do for any parent is to grab their child and to say, this seat is the best place for you. I couldn't imagine Abraham grabbing Isaac, can you? Isaac, I know it doesn't make sense, but the best place for you is up on that altar. I'm going to ask you to climb up there. there's nothing scarier than looking at a wife and saying, honey, I know this doesn't make any sense. But I'm not going to be a man that stands in front of God one day to only hear the words, I don't know you. And honey, I don't want to hear it in your voice. My wife's not here so I can talk about this. I wrote a letter to her last night because I didn't want to be a hypocrite in front of you guys today. I didn't. And in that letter, this is what I wrote her. I said, Lisa, I don't fully understand this chair nor the pain that it has, but I'm asking you to join me in this chair. I'm asking you to join me with all the joy involved in it, but with all the pain. Because Lisa, the greatest way I can say I love you is to know that you're a saved woman and to know that you'll be able to stand with confidence in front of Jesus one day. 
I want that for her. I want that for my daughter. And if that means pain, bring it. I was talking with a good friend of ours. Not a good friend, a friend. And I called him on the phone and I didn't get him, I got her. Hey, no laughing. I hope this doesn't go out of the podcast now. Um, and I just said, how are you guys doing? You know, and everybody's response, oh, you know, we're good. See, the reason she re- responded, I was caught by the weirdness of it, is, is that she has a husband that's facing a terminal disease, possibly. And so I asked her again, I go, no, really, I go, how are you doing? And she goes, Todd, I don't know how to explain it to you, but I have peace and pain. I go, we'll try to. She goes, Todd, there's nothing greater than knowing that I have a husband that's walking through pain in a way that honors Christ. And she goes, I know where my husband's going. And she said, last night we sat our two kids down. And we explained to them what's going on with daddy, that that daddy could live, but daddy could die. And then she said this to me, and it just about floored me. They looked at their kids and said, and we're so excited because this is what daddy was designed to do. Daddy was designed to get cancer, possibly. And whether he lives or dies... He got it so that others might see God in a unique way that they don't see Him any other way. I'm on the other end of the phone going, <laughs> I mean, I was, just, I was, I was bawling. I am blown away that they would look at their kids and say, Daddy was designed for this. It's a John 9 issue when all of a sudden Jesus is coming out there and there's a blind guy there and everybody's going, Hey, uh, did his parents sin or did he sin? And Jesus goes, Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I created him blind for this very moment right now. And he healed him. Now, I don't want to leave on a downer. This is how I want to leave. Job sang a song in Job 1 that was so cool. God had just taken away everything from him and Job was just standing there with with nothing other than his own health. And he said this, Look, naked I came, naked I'll return. And he says these unique words. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Like I want to be at a point in my life where I am so excited about what God's doing in in spite of the pain that I will say, God, I don't have a clue what you're doing right now, but blessed be your name. Because you're a good God, a God that loves me, that went all the way to the cross for me, and therefore because you love me that much, I know you're not going to love me any less the rest of my life. And the other thing is this. He uses this idea of it being a short time. These trials that are brief. I was talking to my grandfather on the phone. And uh, I don't know how much longer my grandfather is going to live. His words were, if you want me to see your granddaughter, you should probably bring her quick. But while I was talking to him, I heard a man in his 90s talk about how life went like that. He was 18, then he was 30, and now he's 90-something. But then I heard words off my grandpa's mouth that I couldn't wait to hear. He goes, it's time to go home. 
Yes! Go home, Grandpa! Get out of here! Go be with Jesus! Go, I know you love the Lord! I've watched you sacrifice and give like no other people I know in my life. Go see Jesus. And oh man, Grandpa, when you stand in front of God, well done, good and faithful servant. I want that in my life. I want to be a man like my Grandpa. I want to know when I'm laying on my deathbed that I'm going to see Jesus. I don't want to be a guy that sat in that chair. And wonders, huh, was my faith real? And so we're going to stand up and sing, and you can go ahead and come out now, worship team. I totally went different. <laughs> Did you like that? Yeah, okay. By the way, if you're new to Cornerstone, welcome to Cornerstone. This is how we do operate. <clears throat> um, we're about ready to sing. Sing like you believe you're going to see Jesus one day. Like, I think we've gotten too happy here. We've gotten too troubled here. I mean, do you get it? We get to go to heaven. Amen? And if you're somebody in this room today that maybe is unsure about your faith, please come talk to us today. I do not want to leave anyone, let anyone leave here today without knowing that I truly have a faith that will one day see Jesus. Please come up and talk to me. If you're somebody that needs to get baptized today, life is brief. Get in the water. And the other thing is, I know we have people with pain in our church right now. And to those of you out there, I can only pray I came across as a pastor that loves you and can look at you with absolute confidence and say to you, God has purpose in your pain. There's a purpose for it. And if you need prayer, come up and we'll pray for you. Because right now I've got pain in my ears. <laughs> you want to pray for me? Anyway, let me pray. Could we all stand? And by the way, smile. Smile. Freak people out. We're going to heaven. Like have people walk up to you and just say, oh... Let's pray. Jesus, I love you. And uh, God, I don't know what pain is going on right now at Cornerstone Community Church. I know it's in my life and the people that I get to come into contact with, but God, thanks for the pain. God, thank you so much that you're using it to conform us to the image of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you so much that you're using us to remind us that, uh, that we need you and only you. Thank you so much that in this pain you are ripping away everything about this world that we cling to so that we might only cling to you so that on that day when you call us home our only expectation is you. Thanks for this precious group of people, Father. Thank you so much just for their desires. Thank you for the way that, that, that they, they're here today and desire to know you and love you more. And God, I pray you would do a miracle in the lives of people. I pray you would work in such a way that all of us clamor and cling to that first chair in absolute joy in spite of the pain. We love you so much in your precious name. Amen.